welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the community and the development sector. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. This is our first podcast for 2022, and I'm delighted to be sitting down with Kylie Legg, who is the founder and the CEO of Place Score, a social research company. And today we're going to discuss livability. So welcome, Kylie. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be here. Nice to <laughs> see you, Belinda, in real life as well. That's right, actually. It's, it's good, isn't it? It is nice. Um, look, the work that PlaceScore does is incredibly valuable and I just love the way that you are concentrating on building a data set that really gives us a real sight, um, yeah, real insight, I guess, into what communities value about where they live. And it's not only that you're giving us that data, but you're also providing a data set that that can be constantly tracked and updated. So to see whether those values change as a result of you know different external influences, say such as COVID nineteen. Um, you know, we often hear in the news that you know Sydney or Melbourne has been ranked in the top ten cities of the world. But what makes your data set much different to those other top 10 lists and rankings that occur presently? Um, I think that's really at the crux of why we actually started Place Score because there is a really big problem around how we understand communities and it's sort of this project by project scale. We have a lot of wastage. It's a huge amount of resources and the community themselves are really fatigued. They're saying, you know, well, didn't you just ask us this last week? But if it was for data around the corner, we don't ever use that for the new place. So the f- really one of the big differences is saying, how do we actually collect information from our communities that we can use over and over again? Um, and in terms of how it differs from other livability tools or metrics that are out there, um, bizarrely and kind of like fantastic for us, is that nobody ever asks the people who live in a place what it's like to, you know, how livable it is. Yeah. Everybody else is saying, oh, I'm sitting in an apartment in New York telling you how livable Melbourne is, or I'm telling you how livable Perth is. Um, and the people in Melbourne and Perth are going, well, actually, that's not what it feels like for me. And we've never been able to find, well, up until now, a universal or nationally consistent way to be able to capture that data and track it over time. Um, I think it's really interesting in talking to some of the people doing like the sort of uh, performance metrics out of federal and state government is that, you know, when you align it with what we're teaching our kids, which is livability is an assessment of what it's like to live in a place, um, that we have had no tool up until now to actually deliver on that thing that we're actually educating people about. Yeah, so it's great that you've actually been able to pull together a data set that is really going to define that for the first time. It is. It's great. It's not the easiest task. I know there's a lot of people using different types of data. We've set ourselves a pretty enormous challenge to build a data set. So it's called proprietary data. So we're collecting data directly from real human beings in communities. And I think that's another distinguishing feature because there's a lot of data out there. I kind of call it the data tsunami. And it's like, well, what data do we use and why do we use it? And we really built this whole system and methodology to be super rigorous. It's university peer reviewed um, in order And the promise to the people who actually share what's important to them is that it will influence decision-making, so it's fit for purpose as well. So why is livability so important to you? Um, I don't know. I 
I mean, my mission, my life mission is to make urban environments better for people. So whether it was my first company, Place Partners or Place Score, that's what we're trying to do. And I think that what I found from sort of more traditional consultancy where we were doing project by project is that um, a lot of people would say, oh, well, there's not enough people that were engaged, so therefore we don't have to do it. And so we weren't able to really cut through to representative samples of saying, well, what's it like for women there? Or what's it like for young people? Or what's it like for people getting older in this neighbourhood? Um, and so I'm kind of like a bit of a problem solver, I kind of say, is my superpower. So I kept on looking at this whole and kind of the knowledge and went, well, we need to actually understand what it's like for people at a much larger scale um, and much more consistently. Um, and we need all the stakeholders to have access to the same data so that there's less conflict as well between stakeholders. Yeah, I, I just love that you're really getting down to the nitty gritty of it all. And really, you know, just, and it's all about the people because, you know, when I think about, well, as a planner, when I, when I think about like traditional planning and I think about design and development and, and I guess how those processes start, it all starts with, I guess, that analysis of the physical place. You know, this is, everyone goes out and they, they do their land use studies and they do their topographical investigations and their geological investigations and, you know, their tree canopy research and, you know, the list goes on and we have a huge document which is the site analysis. You know, and then the planners and the developer and the architects and the governments all talk about, you know, with great gusto how they want to deliver a project or a place for the people, a place that's embraced and loved by the community. But no one's really asking the community or haven't been traditionally asking the community up front. And then the process goes on that, you know, basically the designers go away, design the project or put the plan in place. And then it goes on exhibition fully completed and it's at that point that the community goes, you know, oh, well, yeah, the government, or, you know, the, the process says to the community, oh, what do you think about this? Yeah, and it's set up for conflict, right? Because uh, any time you put value. something in front of someone and say, what do you think, then they're generally going, and certainly in that thing, they're, they're looking for things that are wrong with it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what you're sort of saying is what we're also really, really saying is that going, we don't do enough social research rather than just engagement or consultation um, to actually understand what would make a place right for these particular people that we are either catering for, whether or not they're existing community or future communities. Um, there's, this has been this user experience sort of understanding or customer experience is in every single industry except for the mm. built environment. Yeah, I agree. We are so far behind. I agree. So Place Score invented the term PX, which is place experience. So you would have heard of CX or you've heard of UX for online or brand kind of um, experience and interaction. Um, and it's still not really been taken up. It's like we're still kind of saying we count stuff and say we can – really kind of say whether or not we're successful versus actually measuring outcomes, which is yeah. really my focus is saying we've got to stop thinking about things that just fit in a spreadsheet. Although part of Place Score was to make sure that the voice of the community could be in a spreadsheet because it's been missing forever. We haven't been able to weigh, find a way to quantify it. Yeah, no, and I, and I love that because, you know, there's a lot of debate around, um, you know, engagement at the moment. You know, what is meaningful engagement? Um, and as I said, you know, <laughs> The department's just, you know, released some guidelines for how they would like to see engagement undertaken. 
Um, and they're saying that the emphasis all is all on meaningful engagement and trying to get the process away from just consulting at exhibition. So to have, you know, I guess for proponents to have access to the type of data set that you are putting together, to be able to really focus down on the attributes that are, you know, a community values right up front in the pro in the process. That's huge guidance to be able to give a design team. Oh, and it shifts the conversation. So I don't. I used to do a lot of facilitation. I was probably more similar to you in terms of the traditional cons- consultation. I actually now won't do any facilitation without this data, because the thing is that the people who come to the workshop have. You know, it's a privilege to be able to come to a workshop, whether or not you've got the personal capacity in terms of time, you don't have family commitments, you're not working, um, or it could be confidence, you know, if English isn't your first language, or if you come from a country where government is really scary, you're not going to feel welcome into these environments. So already we're sort of self-selecting a huge amount of people out of that process. Yep. Um, and they're not representative of the community in many cases. They are representing a very small percentage of the community. So when we sort of talk about capturing values at that representative level, we are kind of saying, well, how do we start off with the things that really matter to the most of us? And the conversation then is around shared values versus around conflict, firstly, and that shifts everything. So even though those people coming are representatives of the community, I'm going, well, here's another 900 or 1,000 or 30,000 people, and this is their top 10 values that they think would make an ideal neighbourhood. How do we give give them that and what's stopping and how can we use this project to help us get more of those things that actually really count to the most amount of people? Yeah, and I think that's a really key point that you've just raised, just being able to give that holistic perspective that isn't always in the room, mm. you know. I mean, And also to drill down, right, like going, you know, we'll talk about sort of the different groups, but not only can we do that geographically, but importantly demographically. So, you know, we say that young people don't often come to these things. Well, I can say, well, here is actually the values of young people. Here is whether you're all aligned and here are the different groups that actually have different values from you and how do we manage that? How do we take responsibility for for not just making it about the common good, but it's also the common being careful about some of these minority groups who aren't heard very well? Yeah. Can you um, can you share with me an example of a project that you've, I guess, that you've worked on where you've captured those community values up front and then seen those carried through into the, like, the, the final design? It might be a, like a development project or a planning project or... Um, I think going there's, a, I mean, there's there's so many examples, thankfully. <laughs> We've got a lot of examples. But I think the first thing is to say we're collecting data actually at three scales. So we do the neighbourhood, which is a livability, um, and then we're doing streets and town centres. So we do a lot of work with both local government and the private sector around retail and local economies and being customer focused in the public domain. And then just in the middle of last year, just pre-COVID, we had um, launched our park tool. Um, and in all of those cases, we're sort of doing before and afters as well, so around tracking impact. Um, the project, we've just finished those for Noosa Council. I'm sure they won't mind since it was public. We collected really great data from across their LGA. And so that data now is being sort of embedded across the organisation. And this can happen um, with... You know, so it's it's in corporate planning, but it's also being used by the development team. It's being used by um, uh, land use planning, economic development. And so just if you imagine like the shift that would be from having six different engagements to having one engagement that the whole council is aligned around um, and that the community sees the direct line of sight from what they said 
to all of these different documents and how much kind of reduction in kind of all the stress internally as well um, versus, you know, kind of uh, saying, oh, okay, we're trying to get funding even um, around it. And then using that data to share, um, we have another council that has created a little kit for their development partners of saying, this is what our community represents. These are our targets for prioritisation. How can you help us do that? And starting that partnership approach as well. So there's really lovely examples of just quite significant shifts in the way people do things, but also how they allocate resources and how they resolve conflict. It's really good to hear that the information is being made available to, I, I guess, the private sector in that case. Um, because that's really important to be able to, yeah, as you said, to be able to share that data so that it can be systematically applied in private developers, by private developers yeah. well, as well. I think going the people in the built environment and in people in government in the built environment, um, what's hard sometimes is that we manage things in silos by our professional expertise, but the community doesn't experience their neighbourhood in silos. They don't know if something's owned by state or by the local yeah. council or by the private sector. They just look around and go, everything looks really crappy. And then they call the council. So the council does get hit kind of probably the hardest. Um, and so this is really a useful tool as well to be able to go and say, well, if someone's saying all oh, the businesses are really suffering, that we can look into that data and go, okay, well, it might be the range of prices or it could be the lack of service businesses or it could be that there's not enough things to do in the evening. And so that becomes a tool that they can work on together as well, which I think, you know, for me, that collaboration is the heart of placemaking, which is obviously kind of my my passion. And, kind of <laughs> and we're so glad that it is. <laughs> um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the 2021 Australian Livability Census um, because it really is pioneering work by Place Score. And I think you've described it um, as one of the most uh, ambitious research projects that's ever been undertaken in Australia. So well done. Thank you. <laughs> As my team would say, it's just like sometimes they look at me and they go, please don't come out with another idea, Kylie. Just go back into your little box for just give us a month. Give us a month to get over the last one. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, can you tell me, I guess, what the difference is between the livability census and say the ABS population and housing census that we've just all gone through? Well, unfortunately, we're not quite as big as them yet, but um, anyone out there in ABS world, we would love to be as big as you or partnered with you, so feel free to get in touch. Um, but uh, one of them's counting stuff and one of them's understanding what the amount of people and things actually, how it matters. So in traditional planning, we're using the census data all the time, um, the ABS census, and uh, we're saying, oh, okay, well, we see a forecast in the in, in the amount of um, young families coming into an area. So then we go, well, what does that mean for planning? Oh, we need to put in playgrounds and schools. So there is, we're making decisions from that. But then if you think about kind of how different the population is compared to 50 years ago and what a playable landscape means to young people today um, or into mixed ages being in the same environment. I look at, you know, we're in the city today in Sydney, kind of if you go down to what's been going around um, around the waterfront and, you know, but people don't separate their children from nightlife anymore, you know, from certain cultural groups. And so suddenly play is something different. And what we can do is understand that play and food or nighttime and play can actually go together, that they're not to be isolated and put in a fence. So the livability census is understanding those people that we know are coming or are there, what is it that's important to you, and then how are your neighbourhoods performing? So we're getting two types of data, values and performance data. 
And how many years is the, have you been undertaking the census for? Uh, the first one, the inaugural, was 2021, um, which was really interesting timing because we've been collecting neighbourhood data for five years prior to that. This was certainly the biggest jump in the amount of data that we got, over 30,000 people in a three-month period. Um, we were uh, co-funded by the federal government um, through the Boosting Female Founders Grant um, or initiative, I think it's called, um, which was incredibly helpful. So it was something that we'd been really wanting to do, but um, obviously it is super ambitious. Um, we are kind of like plan tech startup sort of thing. I mean, we're now six, so I guess we've passed the worst of it. Um, but we were missing young people. Um, we had some geographies that we didn't have good data in. Um, and we also wanted to um, kind of look at some of the cultural and linguistically diverse communities um, and fill in some of those holes. So we're really happy that, for instance, one of our outcomes was 2% of the respondents don't identify as either female or male, 2% identify as Indigenous. And so suddenly we've got a different way of looking at some of the big changes that are happening culturally in our community and how we identify um, and being able to look at those people and what matters to them and make sure that they're being heard because you're not going to get the right representation in a workshop for 30 people. So how do you how do you actually start a project like this? How do you, you know, find or randomly select the people to participate in the census? Yeah, the data acquisition is obviously one of the biggest challenges. If you're web scraping, it's easy. I just, you know, go and buy the data and kind of tell you what I think it means. Um, we have a lot of planning that goes into it. And in this case, we had a number of partnerships. So um, I think 47 local governments partnered with us to distribute it to, um, to their communities. Um, and we had other not-for-profit partners um, who distributed it to their communities. Um, um, as well as some of the other kind of like Go Get and Street Libraries of Australia, which I've kind of both related to. So we're trying to get different groups and we were, so we're going through different channels and then social media and then field work, old-fashioned. And is it as strict to say the, you know, the, the ABS data where it, um, the census where it's got to be sort of undertaken on a, on a set night? Is it, is it, we is it uh, had a three-month, we had a three-month window right. um, because, yes, the world's, much more complicated than that. Um, and it's not as necessary because a number of the things in the ABS are around how many people in this household right now and they need to know that unequivocally for the whole of the country. Um, today or tomorrow, my values aren't going to change that much and my neighbourhood performance isn't going to change that much. So time in that kind of window isn't. We're also incredibly fortunate um, that during that window that the country was out of lockdown. So it was the 27th of June and we closed on the 30th of June that we started going into lockdowns on the East Coast. So, in fact, our data is in a way more consistent nationally than the ABS because by the time the ABS census happened, half the country was in lockdown. Mm. Interesting. So in terms of when you start asking people about livability, have you already then defined or pre pre-identified, I guess, a baseline set of attributes against which people are going to be saying, yes, I agree with that attribute. I, you know, my, 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 my community or my neighbourhood is ranking really highly on that, but I don't think it's doing that well on yeah. something else. Yeah, there's hundreds of different indices and different organisations have got their own tools and things like that. So, um, about seven years ago, we started doing the base research around this and it kind of looked at every single tool that we could possibly find. And there was, I think, 865 different 
attributes or metrics that were being used globally. Um, part of our one-year peer review with Macquarie University was to go through the process of identifying 50 that are universally valued by all communities and all demographics, regardless of geography or climate or how old you are or whatever. So, we start off with the premise that these 50 things are universally valued. In fact, for an ideal neighbourhood should have all 50. Okay. But the trick is that we don't have necessarily the resources to, all to do all 50, so we need the help from the community to tell us how to prioritise. So this is about um, ownership and sort of building responsibility from the community as well of saying, going, you need to help us. And so this is quite important. I mean, I've been at a lot of the focus groups when we were testing these and and I, we, you know, we knew how long it should take. And I remember sitting um, and going up and asking an older couple um, why, you know, if I could help them, they were taking a long time. And um, they were like, no, we've just realised we live in the wrong neighbourhood. <laughs> and people were like, oh, my God, is that a failure? And, da, da, da. and I said, no, that's exactly what this is meant to be doing. If these are the things you care about and physically or in terms of the system, your neighbourhood cannot deliver them, you've got two choices. Find a neighbourhood that matches what matters for you or complain yeah. and be unhappy. And I think we've a lot of people because obviously housing has got its own thing where they, it's harder to move, but they're actually living a subpar life when they could move five suburbs along and get actually what they want. Yeah, I better ask you for the list. <laughs> I keep wondering if I should move. Maybe I better take it. I don't know. Are you smiling? Do you like walking around your neighbourhood? There's probably a few simple metrics. <laughs> no, I do like walking around my neighbourhood. It's pretty good on the faces. <laughs> um, I know you're still like really deep diving into the um, and, and analysing the findings from the 2021 census, but I was hoping that you might be able to share with us some of the you know the high level data that's available. Um, I guess what are the attributes that seem to be most universally desired or sought after in places and neighbourhoods by communities? Um, I think it's, well, we were kind of interested, obviously, in this as well. Is there something we can just say, please just do this and this will make the most people happy? Um, so elements of the natural environment is um, definitely up there in the top. And we're not talking about just putting a tree in after you've kind of come in and, um, you know, got ready for development. It is around things like topography and views and keeping some of the natural vegetation. So people like the authenticity of nature as actually a distinguishing feature. So it's in the uniqueness category as well. And it's um, one that is actually, I think it's 72% alignment or something crazy. It's over 70% alignment across the whole country. So if you think about that, it's like going, if there was just one thing that would make the most amount of people happy, it would, it would be retaining that when, particularly if you're starting a new project. Um, uh, I think the other thing, and, and maybe this is a bit of post-COVID, is around walkable local amenity. So um, the very, and the good news is that it's also performing quite well. So kind of, it's one of the biggest contributors. So people are saying that they want to be able to walk around. And I think the reason why Australia does so well is because we have that village historical, um, kind of neighborhood yes. typology that has grown around a news agency and a milk bar and things like that. Um, although that's not the same in new suburbs and that's playing out. I can see that in the data that it's a, it's a problem. Um, and I think the other thing that comes through perhaps, uh, was really surprising is actually the value of, um, maintenance, care, and people reinvesting in their places. So, you know, we're really fortunate and Australian infrastructure is actually incredibly good. I mean, you 
walk through the streets of LA and you realise how good our pavements are and things like that. Um, but uh, people do have high expectations of that now. And so we need to manage that over time and make sure that um, people, we are making sure there's money to look after places into the future as well. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's you know really good feedback for local councils as well. And I, and I guess that, you know, where we've got debates about whether councils should increase their rates in an area and, you know, being able to get access to and understand that thinking within a community is important and, and great for that decision-making. I'm really interested how age influences livability. And I guess one of the, you know, from running, I guess, like traditional um, consultation, it's always been quite difficult to get the 20 plus um, age group along to a consultation event. And it's really important that we do try and engagement, be, engage with them because let's face it, the, many of the projects and the plans that we are being prepared at the moment have a 10 to 15 year horizon and, and they're the main beneficiaries of those plans. So to be taking those types of, I guess, projects forward and not having that involvement is really concerning. Um, how, I guess, how is age influencing some of the findings that you are, are getting from the census? Um, it definitely does. I mean, a lot of the demographics, surprisingly, aren't the biggest factors um, to influence values, but there's some really key ones around age, between, particularly between those younger cohorts, the under 25s, and then the older cohorts that are often making the decisions. Um, and so, and I think that would be quite surprising for many of the older people going, well, you know, I think I know what everyone wants, but then actually it's been tainted by what your own values are. So some of the big differences, then probably the most obvious is things to do at nighttime, right? So there's a massive spike for younger people um, and they want it in their local neighbourhoods as well. So it's not so much about going into the city. They want to be able to express themselves and create connections and social lies in the evenings um, locally. So that's a, quite a big spike. Um, inversely, um, that access to those communal um, amenities is a big spike for the over 65s. And it's actually lower, much lower than the average for the under 25s. Um, I think that's probably because a lot of the things that they're accessing are done virtually. Um, so place-based um, access is not as important to them. Um, but I'm seeing other things playing out from that, which is sense of safety um, for the first time in any research that I've seen, um, and I'm not saying that it's not there, is um, performing much lower for young people than it is for those older people. So historically, it was always the older people saying it's really dangerous here, I feel unsafe. It's now the young people saying I feel oh, unsafe. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and that I find really worrying. Yeah, it's disturbing. Um, because, and I think it correlates saying if you're not connecting in your neighbourhood and you're not going to the local shops and you're going and buying things with the automatic delivery and you're socialising online and things like that, then you're missing out on a lot of those sort of transitory social connections that actually make you feel safer. So if something bad happens, you can go and knock on the neighbour's door or you can go into a shop and feel like you're comfortable. And I'm wondering how much that plays into it from the place-based and then, of course, the world's absolutely terrifying COVID climate change. So I can understand why they're scared on that sense as well, but it's, it is playing out in how they relate in their neighbourhoods and it's definitely an area we can work on and use some of our expertise and experience to support these young people. Tell me, um, does age uh, is influencing things like, uh, I guess, the importance that is placed on traffic and parking? 
associated with uh, development because I know, you know, often when I have a, uh, a consultation around a new development project, um, the room just erupts over, you know, you can never have enough parking and you always generate too much traffic. Yeah. I mean, I've got a whole lot of theories about this <laughs> because I've done a lot of engagement. Um, there's 50 attributes and they get to choose what's most important to them and ease of parking and ease of driving and parking is generally between 25th and 30th. So that means there's at least 25 other things that are more important to more people than being able to move your vehicle around. Um, And that's pretty universal. Um, Interestingly, the under 20-year-olds have a higher value of that because probably they're not being allowed to walk around. Mm. They're being driven. So they hear their parents complaining about it. So we're teaching them to be complainers about it. Um, and then up, and then you've got that sort of older cohort that are used to it who have a higher value. And then, of course, once um, people can't drive anymore or they're feeling less confident, then there's a massive drop off. But no matter what, walking, cycling, and public transport options is valued by more people in every single demographic. So it is, I think, number three nationally in terms of values in an ideal neighbourhood. So we are definitely not getting it right with the amount of time we put into responding to those concerns. Um, And some of that is because we have been training people for the last 30 years to talk about traffic and parking. And so um, part of Play school by having those 50 attributes, we're actually also giving them a tool to think about the other things that matter in neighbourhoods. And suddenly they're talking about um, walkability or they're talking about the fact that they kids can't walk to school or you can't walk to the shops um, or that there isn't childcare or that there is too much of something And because we've given them 50 things to talk about and the car parking is only one of them. Yeah, it's so good. I'm, it's just fantastic getting this feedback. And, you know, again, too, I guess in that, you know, the planning and urban design, I guess, sort of space, you know, we've always been talking about the 400 metre sort of that diameter, which is the walkability of a suburb. And, you know, you can sit there in a, an event and people go, no one's going to walk that. No one's going to walk that. They're going to drive. They want to go, want to drive, and oh, they're going to want a space really right out, right out the front. <laughs> my walk, my walkable catchment is a kilometre, um, which you know I I live in Darlinghurst in Sydney. I'm very very fortunate, but I pay the premium for that because I'm a walker, and I walk to Central every day to my office, um, and it's a great walk because it's interesting. There's lots of choices. There's lots of shade. Yeah. There's lots of pedestrian priority. I do. I spend so much more money than my driving compatriots because I stop in a few shops on the way home, yeah, it's better for the local, the local economy, economy. Yeah, et, cetera, et cetera, So, in fact, for everybody, um, and it makes me feel safer and other people feel safer because I'm out on the street um, and I'm saying hello and I'm building connections. So, yeah, I'm a yeah, big walker. So to have that data come to support that position is fantastic and it is quite clearly in. That's good. And it's such a challenge, I think, for our new subdivisions and our new communities that we're designing just to really try and, you know, get this right in first principles. You know, it's really, it is, it's really exciting feedback um, that you're getting. Is there another, I guess, some clear trend that you've seen coming out of the census data so far that we haven't talked about? Hmm, I'm trying to start, kind of think about what is um, some of the things that we've heard. Um, I mean, look, in terms of uh, the Places that have got the highest levels of amenity are definitely performing the best. So um, over time, that's going to have 
impacts on things like land values or the ability to, if you're developing, to actually get approvals if we are seeing these lower levels of livability. So um, we've seen that there's a direct correlation. I was hoping it wasn't the case, but it is between CFAR and livability from the from the place census. Um, so that we're seeing as it go, CFAR um, goes down, so does the livability. Um, but a lot of the times it's because the more affordable houses have lower levels of amenity um, in their neighbourhoods. So we we are disadvantaging people in double ways. Um, and so if we're thinking more about equity, we can use this sort of data to really help clarify the areas of inequity. And certainly when we do it at the LGA level for local government, it um, you know, it just reveals it immediately about who is satisfied and who is not satisfied in terms of just what is needed to, to live a good life um, versus being told you know, then they're not so lucky um, or, you know, these people are disadvantaged because you don't have to have a lot of money to live a good life, yeah. um, but you do need to have access to the things that will support that good life. How is um, are things like housing choice um, being approached? As, I mean, is, is that something that, you know, is, is rating well, having a, a, a neighbourhood that offers housing choice? The housing uh, attributes are not as highly valued compared to other things, um, which tend to be more about shared amenity um, than individual things, which I think is interesting as well that the people mm. don't put themselves first almost. They put the whole neighbourhood first. Yeah. Um, but it's performing poorly. So housing typology choices and housing tenure and cost um, choices are two of the lowest performing, particularly in capital cities, obviously, um, but also we're seeing it in the rapidly growing neighbourhoods and LGAs. Um, so uh, it's the most regular attribute that's performing, it's failing as such. So it's performing under five out of 10. Um, and it's definitely performing worse for younger people. Yeah, interesting. And I guess that's not unexpected. No, I guess we're hearing it, but this actually allows us to both demographically and geographically locate the areas mm. where it is mm. of the most concern. Um, and in many cases, like, you know, even though it feels like built environment data, we're soft infrastructure and hard infrastructure. So in many cases, this might reveal to us of saying, so sustainable urban design, for instance, is something that is a high priority for young people, which means it's highly valued but seen to be underperforming. Mm. Um, and when we look at some of the areas that I know have got sustainable urban design, but they might be high density, sometimes it's about education, is that people don't realise that higher densities or the clustering of amenity, yes. I like to say it, um, is actually really sustainable for the city. Um, it means that you don't use a car so much, that you don't use as much land, that you can uh, share amenities instead of spreading them out. Um, so in those cases, I'm saying to particularly government agencies, but also the private sector, are you really giving people the information about their places that they need to know in order to assess it? Because you might have done all this water sustainable, uh, what's it? What is it? Water sustainable urban design, but you didn't tell anyone that you did it. Yes. So they're going, oh, I want to be sustainable, and I don't. It doesn't look sustainable, like because I don't know what they think it looks like. So then it's about communications. Yeah, and and that's a, I mean a really important point with with engagement because you know if you look at the engagement models, they they, they talk about informing people, but they don't talk about educating people. And that education process is so important uh, as part of comms. 
Well, we, I mean, part of the, I think the reason why we're so successful in getting people to do these um, census is because we ask them questions that they know the answer to. So it's like, what's important to you and how is your neighbourhood performing for you? Um, so we're not uh, assuming any knowledge. We're not saying, should there be more car parking? Because how could they possibly know the answer to that? And of course, the answer is always going to be yes. If you said, should there be more parks? Should there be more playgrounds? They're all going to say yes, 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 yes. It's when you go, should there be this or that? Tell us which one's more important for you that actually it becomes meaningful. Yeah, and there's no judgment in terms of the answers as, as well. Oh, look, yeah. going the places that have a high value of something like car accessibility and parking, it's because they have no modal choice. Mm. And I can show you that as going, if I look at a whole thing of going, if it's not easy to walk around and there's no public transport, then they will care about cars more because they have no choice. And we have to respect that. That's the city we've designed for them. So please help these people, right? Yeah. Get Give what they choice. need. Yeah. But the other people who have got choice, let's make that choice real. Like let's not ruin yeah. walking yeah. by making it all about cars. And then they can't walk and then it's worse for everyone. One of the interesting um, attributes that I picked up that you are asking people about is unique and landmark buildings and, and urban uh, urban places. And I guess on my first sort of reading through of your of the of the data, it didn't seem to be a high priority um, for, I guess, in terms of the, it, it wasn't a high ranking attribute. Yeah, compared um, to the compared other to compared yeah. to other things, which I guess you know led me to start thinking about like you know where we are at at the moment um, with the state government, with a lot of local councils, you know, looking at uh, like proponents, applicants. Uh, directing them to to take the design competition, you know, route when they're looking at new projects, and I suppose I started to think, is is that really what we should be doing? Um, you know, is there another attribute that that investment that's put into a design competition um, could be directed to that may be more meaningful to a local community? Um, have, have you got a, an opinion about that? Have I got it wrong? Maybe no. Look, I think. <laughs> I mean, there's with each of these, it's all kind of like depending on who you're looking at, which lens you're looking through. So I know that in some areas, like when we did a split of the data for looking at the GSE regions, that the southern city, it was a priority for uniqueness, was actually really poorly performing across the whole of that region. Um, and certainly I can see that in new neighbourhoods that that's underperforming. Um, interestingly, it's it, while it's not in the top 15 across the country, it is in the top five for those people living in the most urban neighbourhoods today um, because they're looking out of windows and they're seeing buildings. So for them, it is really important. And that's, again, real. And this is, I think, going that as outsiders from anything, we're like, oh, we either generalise or we can put our own bias. And so by looking at this, I just have to look at the, I mean, it's that's their truth and I can't say it's not. Um, whether or not, you know, universally we should be putting sort of a premise on um, these design competitions as a tool for getting better outcomes, um, I think kind of you can learn. I'm a, I was on a jury and that process was really, really fantastic, both for, I think, the designers, but perhaps more importantly for the clients who really learned a lot from it and it made their ambitions for the project increase because they could see what opportunities perhaps they weren't able to imagine themselves, which I loved being part of. Yes, um, good outcome. Yeah, I mean, and me probably generally I'd be like, good design is about problem solving. So 
is the design competition the tool for problem solving at the neighbourhood level? Is it one part of the neighbourhood that we can improve that I think is at a project by project basis? Yeah. I love I love that you've identified it as an attribute though, <laughs> as a baseline attribute. I think it's- Hey, know. I studied architecture. Yeah. Of course it was there. No, <laughs> actually building design is something that is universally measured, right? Mm. Because yeah. it's- you know, every building impacts us that faces onto a shared space. So if you do have a street full of, you know, kind of not very engaging buildings um, or buildings that are, you know, but not performing well over time, like because they were poorly built, that will have a direct impact on the place experience assessment. So, um, and they don't know, again, who owns them or who designed it. It's just like, oh, this feels grey or it feels dirty or it feels like it's not been maintained and that can lead to feelings of not being safe, um, people not wanting to reinvest. So, do I want to volunteer? If they see a piece of rubbish, they're not going to pick it up. So there's a whole lot of other things that it can lead to. Yeah, that ride on its back. I guess we've, you know, well, we're still in COVID-19. Um, <laughs> it's COVID-22 now, yeah, isn't it? COVID-22. <laughs> um, have there been any, I guess, uh, COVID-specific trends that have come out in the data? Yeah, we, I was, um, I mean, we, yeah, March, I think, of 2020, I was like, this is going to be really interesting. And my team again were like, what? We're just like, you know, just started working from home and it's all a bit scary. So we started collecting data, I think, from about May. Um, and we were, I, my in my head, I was like, performance is going to go down the toilet, right? Like our neighbourhoods are not set up for this. We're going to be in so much trouble. Um, I was completely wrong. In fact, the performance of neighbourhoods stayed pretty stable um, and in many cases went up one or two points. Um, and obviously some things in terms of, you know, access to communal amenities which were closed um, dropped down. But what people did was rediscover their neighbourhoods. And so they found all of these lovely things and were really, really happy about how good neighbourhoods are across this country. What changed really significantly What was what matters. So their values changed. So during COVID, that first year, particularly 2020, um, yeah, 2020, we were seeing spikes of 40% increases in alignment. So particularly around things like access to neighbourhood amenities, parks and open spaces. Um, connectivity equally dropping 30% as people realised, actually, I can do this without physically having to be in that place. Um, proximity to education dropped um, significantly, whereas, you know, a lot of people are choosing where they live based on how to get their kids into schools. Um Last year when we uh, did the census, we compared that to pre-census data and we saw things have stabilised a bit. Um, so all of the attributes associated with that communal amenity, nature, et cetera, have stayed increased up to 14% increase in alignment. And the biggest decrease is car accessibility and parking, which has a 7% reduction um, nationally in terms of the amount of people who selected it as being important. So, yeah, it's a kind of, it will be interesting. Um, we're starting to plan for the next census um, to see how we can be tracking this now long-term as well. Best guess, do you think there'll be a realignment? I think it's stabilised now. Um, we've been collecting data um, since, well, of, of, continuously because we do the census, but then we're doing project-based data. Um, and I'm not seeing any like massive shifts away from that. Um, it's 
yeah, it seems pretty established. I mean, for me, the only thing is that going, to what point do I get to say going nature and open space and access to shared amenities are just universally valued and I can stop asking people about them. Just please deliver it. That's just right. do that. And then, you know, then we can move on to the next set of things. Could drill down into another area. Yeah. Oh, look, I've got to ask you, I know we started talking about rankings and I, you know, based on your, on your data set, what are the top three livable capital cities? Um, well, I was a bit surprised, and I'm sorry to have to say this, <laughs> going to the thing. But remembering this is people assessing their own place. It's not me assessing it, right? And this is the whole thing. How livable is it for you? Adelaide, clear, stand out. The people in Adelaide really, really love their oh, city. City it's, of churches. It's meeting their needs. It's It's got what they want, and it's doing it the way they want it to be done. Um, Sydney, next. Um, and we talk about the city of Sydney and the city of Adelaide, so it's just those LGAs. Um, and then Hobart. City of Hobart. Hobart. Yeah, it's number three. So, um, and but generally all the cities are doing very well. Um, so we're sitting, I think, above or on or above the national average. So that's good for those LGAs. And I think going it does reflect the amount of work that our capital city councils have actually been putting in in terms of leadership around place and, and livability. Yeah, interesting. And, and I guess in terms of neighbourhoods, let's look at maybe young people. What are the three neighbourhoods that young people um, find most livable? I actually loved this piece of research because, um, you know, it is kind of we're planning for the future and, you know, the, the things that we're working on now, you know, we're not going to live in them. Somebody else is going to live in them. Um, you know, my joke, which when I was younger, it was much funnier. I was like, there's a whole lot of, you know, 60-year-olds planning for 16-year-old girls. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm closer to one end than the other now. Um, so hearing that voice of young people. So, yeah, so the best performing neighbourhoods from those under 25s is Nightcliffe in Darwin. Nightcliffe in Darwin. Yeah. Wow. Um, West End in Brisbane and Ultimo in Sydney. Um, and so a lot of the stuff around proximity to jobs, um, all of those kind of connectivity things are, are really there in the hard infrastructure and the economics. Um, but what was really spiking in those was the social connection opportunities um, of young people. In many cases, you know, they're moving away from home now to be at universities, um, to getting their first jobs. And actually, um, especially as, and I think we'll see more of this as work and university is online, where are they going to have these opportunities? And they'll want that in their um, in their urban, like in their neighbourhoods yes. where, and especially if you've got smaller places, you're going to need the outdoor spaces, mm. um, both paid seating and free seating to actually facilitate those social connections. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, I guess I've, I've got to ask this question because I just love all of this data. So how can individuals and organisation, organisations access the census data? Can they access the census data easily? <laughs> um, maybe not as easy as you'd want to. You're not going to just be able to log in and get into it, but you can get onto our website and there is a document called State of Place, which has kind of some of the key findings and a whole lot of articles. Um, in terms of kind of using it, if a developer was interested in working in a place, um, then they would just get in contact and say, we'd like to get the to, to get the access to the data to understand for a particular demographic or a particular geography. And we would either um, open them up a platform um, where they can go in and filter their own data or create a report for them with those findings. Okay, that's brilliant to know. And 
I guess, how would you like private companies and governments to be best using this data that you're collecting? Oh, you're giving me a platform. I am. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so focus on evidence over anecdotes. There is really good data, whether or not it's ours or other people, and we're still kind of relying on almost the, you know, the the expertise of the consultant. Um, And it it is uh, assumptive, like going, I've worked on, I think I'm really human centric. And I sometimes have to be reminded going, I'm not this, these people, they're having a different experience from me. So if you get that information, then listen to it and make sure that you are responding to that um, in an appropriate way. Um, And I think the other big shift I'd like to be seeing is a move away from sort of um, measuring or counting outputs to measuring outcomes like that. You know, where social impact sounds like this really scary thing, but actually tools like, um, you know, our livability platform actually track this over time and provide you with the direction of kind of what to invest in that will make positive difference. So it doesn't have to be this kind of really scary thing that's another expense. Actually, it could just be part of the whole process of both investment strategy and outcomes measurement. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great just to see it like so fully integrated into decision making. I mean, Again, if I put my planning hat on, you know, even when you sort of think about, excuse me, writing a development application, you know, and you do your statement of environmental effects and you, you know, you've got to go through your heads of consideration to identify, you know, is the project, you know, fulfilling what it needs to do. But to be able to have a level of analysis against livability data um, and to assess a project in that way would would be wonderful as, as part of those documents. Well, it's available. So we're already working with a number of councils to do that, like project prioritisation, which of these 15 projects that have will have the most benefit based on this data. That's great. Um, and we've got others that are using it for, I mean, obviously supporting things like funding applications, but just in their um, budget planning of saying, okay, we've got 40 projects show me which of the community's priorities are aligned with each of those projects. And so we have the financial feasibility, but we've also got the outcomes kind of benefit feasibility as well. Um, And in many cases, they're doing that first going, well, if it's not going to have any benefit to the community, doesn't matter if we can make the numbers work, like, because, you know, we know that we can make the numbers work. So that kind of innovation's already happening and it's being led by local government, which I think is really wonderful. I'm seeing some really great really innovation cool. from local government. Which, um, what are some of the councils in in New South Wales that are leading the way with this? Um, so interestingly, so we've actually, well, I've just spoken to a council just before now, but I don't have a, the piece of paper, so I'm not going to name them. <laughs> um, but we've worked with Wallandilly, we've worked with Ride, we've worked with Inner West, um, Strathfield, so kind of a mixture of councils. And then we've just done Bellingen, which is one of the smallest councils in um, New South Wales. So we just hit 7% of their population. So that's going to change everything for them. Very resource poor, um, very small rate base. Um, and so now they've got this data set that we Will go across all of their planning um, as a as a really important tool. Um, Victoria's already quite ahead because their deliberative engagement processes have really meant that, and we're now seeing their private sector coming to us saying, "Well, if the council's got this data." Wouldn't it be great if we, because we know we can get through quicker, it's going to de-risk yes. our project if we're helping deliver on council priorities as well. So I think that's quite a smart move, actually. Yeah, that's, oh, that's fabulous. 
just hope the momentum just keeps growing with it for you. Thank you. Um, well, I would encourage everybody to go to the Place Score website, um, placescore.org, and to uh, download a copy of the State of Place uh, 2021 Livability Census. I, it's great reading and um, you'll certainly walk away having a much greater insight into how livable our neighbourhoods and our capital cities are. Thank you, Carly, so much for taking the time to join me today. I have really enjoyed this discussion. It is incredible work and you you and your team are true pioneers in social research. So thank you. Oh, well, that's really lovely and it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me in. <laughs>